I want to pray for the synagogue victims' families. We know the victims are now in the hands of God and the hands of a just, merciful, righteous God. So we don't pray for the dead. The time to pray for them is when they're living. So let's pray. Father, we lift up this synagogue in Pittsburgh, all the members there, the families who've been impacted directly by this hor horrific slaying. Lord, we pray for comfort, for peace, for strength, for that entire congregation, especially for the families of the, those who have perished. We pray for those who have survived that they would be healed and restored and made well again. And Lord, we pray that you would use this incident to draw those Jewish people, your chosen people, into a saving relationship with Christ. Lord, we pray for many conversions through this tragedy. And we pray that it would be a wake-up call, Lord, for our nation, that we cannot allow these things to continue. And it involves a change of heart, Lord, that even those who don't know you would realize that this kind of violence is not the way to behave, that this is not what our nation stands for. Lord, we pray that you use all these things that are happening as a wake-up call, that people might open their eyes and ears to see and hear the truth and make good choices and good decisions. Lord, you said that if we would turn from our wicked ways, you would heal our nation. And we pray that that's exactly what would happen. It seems to be happening. We pray that you'd cause it to continue and to grow and grow and grow. Lord, we pray that you'd bless our nation because our president has made the bold move to put our embassy in Jerusalem, your holy city. Lord, your word says those who bless Israel will be blessed. And our nation now has returned to a nation that seems to be committed and dedicated to blessing Israel. And we pray in turn you would bless our nation, Father. And we ask you to bless this time in your word now as we continue the study of Second Peter. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. Well, I'm going to try to finish this second chapter today. We've been making some good progress here lately. We're going to do verses 18 through 22, I think. Try to. It's been a really kind of, honestly, I guess kind of a tedious passage. Not, not boring by any stretch of the imagination, but all this heavy language that Peter is using in his uh, discussion of the false teachers. But the fact that he's dedicated a whole chapter to this tells us how serious he is about this topic, how important it is to him. And let us be reminded that he is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. So it's really the Spirit of God that is taking an entire chapter here in Second Peter to go into great depth and detail about how serious this issue is. And we're seeing it playing out before our very eyes in these last days. Everything that we, we study and read about in the Bible, I believe we're now seeing the fulfillment, the culmination, the fruition of all these things. Everything in the Scriptures points forward to a time in human history that will actually be the end of this current age. Jesus said, Lo, I am with you always, even to the very end of the age. It would be the age of man. If you're a young earther like I am, if you believe that we haven't been here that long, roughly 6,000 years, some will stretch it to 10. But we know that God created all of this 
And then he, his crowning achievement, if you will, was the creation of man. Man and woman. And he gave Adam and Eve dominion over the earth, but then they forfeited it to the devil by disobeying God and following into sin. And yet, nonetheless, God has given man with certain constraints dominion over the earth, but being controlled by... They, we actually, the human race, became the puppets of Satan. But we've had these six to 10,000 years so that God will allow us to prove to ourselves that we don't know what the heck we're doing. Because instead of things getting better and better, evolving into greater and greater things, it's gotten worse and worse and worse. The Bible said that would happen. And oftentimes we may find ourselves saying, well, I don't see how it could get any worse. But it does. And it does because God said it would. And so it's coming to the place now where very soon, my wife and I, and I forget someone else, we were talking about this just the other day. Maybe it was Pastor Ed. Pastor Ed Varos. <laughs> we were talking about the fact that these things are happening. Things are getting worse and worse. But there came a point. We all remember the story of Sodom and Gomorrah. And it, it really began with God and Jesus, if you believe that those two angels, as I do, were the Father and the Son, visited Abraham. And they went to give Abraham a warning because Abraham's nephew, Lot, and his family lived in Sodom. And so they went to visit Abraham, you know, to, to warn Abraham, hey, we're about to destroy the city of Sodom, but we will be delivering your nephew from that destruction. But Abraham began to negotiate with them, remember? But wait a minute, what if there's 50 righteous there? Oh, well, if there's 50 righteous, we won't destroy the city. And then it goes down 40, 30, 20, 10, right? And God was so gracious, he said, well, even if there's 10 righteous... Now see, Lot and his wife and daughters, that's four. That's not ten. He said, even if there's ten, I won't destroy the city. That's just an example of God's amazing grace. We know the song, right? Amazing grace. Well, it turned out there weren't ten righteous. There were only four, and there were only four because God counted Lot and his family as righteous, and yet we know his wife ultimately didn't make the cut so to speak. Well, that was just one city or town. So if you were to look at this world from the same perspective, what, 7.5 billion people on the planet today? I don't know what the population of Sodom was, but proportionately speaking, I believe we're at that same tipping point where God looks down at this world. Well, what if there's one billion righteous. What if there's 500 million? You see what I'm saying? And it gets to the point where God says, you know what? Now what did God do with Sodom? He didn't kill Lot and his family along with the rest, did he? The angels told Lot, we cannot destroy this city till you guys are out of here. They were reluctant to leave. This was their home. There are a lot of believers that are reluctant to leave. You know, we've come to love this world a little too much. I like it here. God says he won't destroy it until his people are removed. That's called the rapture. 
But when you look at what's happening in the world, and Jesus said that the tribulation period, which will be after the rapture, would be worse than any other time in human history. We things ex see things accelerating at an unbelievable pace, do we not? The robotics, the technology, the microchips. And by the way, some time back we talked about the fact, I think there were 300 people in Sweden that had gotten microchips implanted so they could get on and off the subway or something like that. Now it's in the thousands. The microchip phenomenon is slowly multiplying day by day until it will come to the point where every human being will be required to have one. What does the Bible call that? Mark of the Beast. But we're crazy weirdo fanatics, right? Everybody knows the microchip is for our benefit. <laughs> but we're getting to that point. The you know, there's some horrible things happening in the area of robotics with adult entertainment, if you know what I mean. Satan's plan always has been, always will be, to destroy the human race. One of the ways he's doing it is by preventing people from procreating. Now they're saying that for young men today, their sperm count is going down and down and down. More and more young women are not able to conceive. There are a lot of reasons for that. One of them is abortion. Because after you've had multiple abortions, it becomes harder and harder to be able to conceive. That's one of the deceptions of the devil. Oh, I'll choose when I want to have a baby. In the meantime, I'm going to kill them all. And then when you decide you really want one, guess what? You can't get pregnant. That's one of the deceptions of the enemy. It destroys. Oh, it's all about a woman's health? No, that destroys a woman's health. It's proven. It's factual. It's scientific. It's biological. When you go inside of a woman and start messing with her insides, it destroys her health. I just hurt somebody's feelings. I'm not intending to do that. I am not condemning women who've had abortions. But I'm telling you that they have deceived the female portion of our populace. You are victims. The women of our world are victims to this satanic deception. It breaks my heart that I can't speak the truth without people getting offended, but I have to speak the truth. Not very many people are willing to do it. Only I, I guess, am stupid enough to risk having people hate me in order to speak the truth, but I can't stop. How many, I've tried many times, believe me. I've tried many times, believe me. But this is the very reason why the enemy's plan is moving forward. Because people have allowed themselves. We've been talking the last several weeks about those who deceive and those who allow themselves to be deceived. Both are equally guilty. The deceiver is guilty, but the one who allows himself to be deceived is also accountable. All right, I'm getting way off of what I was going to teach here this morning. My point is, this is really serious stuff. Peter's dedicated an entire chapter to it. We're very close to the return of Christ. We're, I believe the world today is at the place where Sodom was at, where God looks down and he says it's no longer viable. Sodom was no longer viable. There were not enough righteous there to justify allowing that city to continue to exist. 
And I believe we're very close to the same place with the entire world where God looks down and he says it's no longer viable to allow this world to continue to exist in its current state. Does that make sense? Because we know at some point the scriptures clearly teach that he will pour out judgment on this world. The world as we now know it will be destroyed and there will be a new world with Christ at its head. That's the one we should be looking forward to. All right, let's just jump right in here. I'm not even going to read through. Beginning of verse 18, 2 Peter chapter 2. I really feel bad about that couple that walked out. Now maybe, I don't know how this has personally impacted that lady. But my heart breaks even more for those who've been ripped off by the devil and lied to and told that it's not really a human being, that it's just some fetal tissue, that it's for your own good. That is the evil. That is the evil. And again, when we want to talk about this upcoming election, that's a very important aspect of it. Do you know why they fought so hard to prevent Justice Kavanaugh from being appointed? Because he's a pro-life judge. Do you realize that the heart of that whole thing, the, the massive effort to destroy him and his family, was because of abortion? The great fear that the abortionists had that he might participate in overturning Roe versus Wade, if that isn't good versus evil, I don't know what is. We're seeing spiritual warfare right in front of us on a daily basis like we've never seen before in our lifetimes. Well, it makes it that much easier to pray because it's really obvious. All right, verse 18. Speaking of these false teachers again. When they speak great swelling words of emptiness, they allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness, the ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. Great swelling words of emptiness. It's literally bombastic words of vanity means flowery, pretentious speech, high-sounding promises that prove to have no real content, worthless, being no different from the sound a donkey makes. <laughs> Remember Balaam? Verse 16, we read about that. He was rebuked for his iniquity. A dumb donkey speaking with a man's voice restrained the madness of the prophet. Have you ever listened to someone speak who seems to be extremely eloquent, well-spoken, uses all kinds of big words and so forth, but then at the end you go, what did he just say? You heard a lot of amazing speech, but there was really nothing in it. They speak great swelling words of emptiness. But here's the deal, folks. A large number of people are easily persuaded by someone, anyone, who gives the appearance of being eloquent, well-spoken, dynamic. In fact, I would say the majority of people would say that's the sign of a really good preacher, a really good teacher. If he's eloquent, well-spoken, dynamic, tall and slender, blonde, people are funny. As Jim Morrison once said, people are strange. 1 Corinthians 2.1 through five. And I, brethren, this is Paul writing, when I came to you, did not come with excellence of speech. Really, Paul, what's the matter with you? Don't you, need to, you? don't you know you need to really polish your message and prepare it and memorize it and practice it in front of a mirror? I know of preachers who do that. 
You, wanna, you don't want to practice in front of the mirror, so you make sure you're using the right facial expression. expression. I'm befuddled. I did not come with excellence of speech or of wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Well, Paul, that's kind of boring. We've already heard that. Really? That's all you've got? Well, that's pretty much the whole deal. Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness, in fear, and in much trembling. Now, why would he be in weakness and fear and much trembling? Because of a fear of misrepresenting God in any way distorting the truth. More concerned about that than his presentation. And my speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power. And that was what set Jesus apart from the religious men of his day. The people said, man, who is this guy? He speaks as one with authority, not like the Pharisees. The Pharisees knew the word inside and out. And they used it to browbeat the people. But when Jesus came along, people sensed power and authority in his teaching and his preaching. And that's what Paul said he came with. And he tells us why in verse 5. That your faith should not be in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. How many, and I, I coined a new phrase a while back, you may remember this. You know, we have those who identify like, in fact, I just read an article. They're saying now it's not just about gender anymore. We already know that people can identify. If you're a man, you can identify as a woman. If you're a woman, you can identify as a man. But it's gone beyond that now. You can identify as a different ethnicity, a different race, or even a different species. Which, again, I don't know why they were so hard on the president for calling the MS-13 gang members animals if it's okay to identify as a different species. I don't know. So I coined a new phrase, those who identify as Christians. See, if you're a man and you identify a as a woman, that doesn't make you a woman. Or if you identify as a panda bear which now is okay. That doesn't make you a panda bear. And if you identify as a Christian, that does not necessarily make you. We used to use this old thing back in the Jesus movement days. You know, going to church doesn't make you a Christian any more than walking into McDonald's makes you a hamburger. Back then it was a big joke. Now, who knows? Maybe somebody out there identifies as a Big Mac. <laughs> it's that ridiculous. But I wonder how many who identify as Christians, some really are, some are not. How many, if the truth were told, truth be told, that their faith does not rest in the power of God, but in the wisdom of men. 
Many times we see how when a well-known, famous preacher, or even a not-so-well-known and famous preacher, falls, falls into sin. We've seen some high-profile guys through the years. Now, if they've repented, confessed, God has forgiven them, praise the Lord for God's grace and His mercy. But we've also seen many people along the way fall away from the faith. Why would you fall away from the faith just because some preacher blew it? And that's not a good thing. It's, it is a hurtful thing. But why, if, you're, if your faith is resting in the power of God and the truth of His Word, why would you fall away from the faith because some preacher blew it? That causes me to think that maybe your faith is not resting in the power of God, but in the eloquence of some man or woman that you follow. And on that basis, I would say that there are many today in that category. There are those who, when their favorite preacher or teacher retires, moves on to another church, which is very common in denominational churches. Pastor Chuck Smith encouraged the Calvary Chapel pastors, if you go out and you plant a church, then you be the pastor there for life. That's what he did. 50 years, 50 plus years. And many of the guys in Calvary that are older, like me, and even older, if you can imagine that, have stayed for many, many years. But in many denominations, it's common for them to move around every two or three years. But there are many who say, well, I'm not going to go anymore. In fact, there are those here that do that when I'm out of town. Oh, Gary's not going to be there. I'm not going. Well, that means you're here for me, and you shouldn't be here for me. You should be here for Jesus. I mean, I appreciate the fact that you support me and stand behind me and value the teachings that I bring, but it shouldn't be about me. It should be about... And that's what Paul is saying here, basically. Hey, I didn't come with excellence of speech or wisdom declaring to you the testimony of God. I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. I was with you in weakness and fear and much trembling. My speech and my preaching were not with persuasive words of human wisdom. We could spend the whole rest of the morning talking about that, but we won't. You know the people who do that. Let's move on. They speak great swelling words of emptiness. They allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness. Now, my wife and I call it a seductive spirit. And you can identify it. If you have discernment, if you're a born-again Christian filled with the Holy Spirit, God has promised that you have discernment, but you have to use it. Women and, and men as well are drawn to those who give off an air of spirituality. Particularly as believers, and it's, it's normal, we should be drawn to those who are, have a, a close walk and relationship with God. We should desire to be around those who are of like mind and like heart. But it also can be utilized in the wrong way. They allure through the lust of the flesh, through lewdness. When the spirituality is false and deceptive, it results in what Peter is describing here. And also for 2 Timothy 3.6, where Paul is writing also about deceivers in the last days. And he says, For of this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women, Loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts. 
And again, you know, when Adam and Eve fell, God told Eve, your desire shall be for your husband, but he shall rule over you. I know that that's another thing that really gets under people's skin and bugs, especially women. They don't like to hear that. It doesn't mean men are any better than women. It just means God said, because you two guys couldn't keep your act together, you both are responsible. Eve went first, but Adam didn't back her up. He jumped in and participated as well. They were supposed to be co-equal, co-rulers, having dominion over this earth, but they messed it all up. So God says, now we've got to have some kind of a chain of command here or things are going to be totally out of control. And so even though you're the woman desire shall be for your husband, which my understanding, and others would agree that this interpretation means that the woman now would have a desire to rule over her husband because he's a big idiot. <laughs> Thanks very much, Adam, for not watching out for me and letting me make this huge mistake. So there's no way you're going to be in charge, buddy. But God says, no, 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 that's not the way it works here. Man was created first, then the woman. We've got to have order. So even though your desire will be for your husband, he's going to be in charge. Not because he's smarter, not because he's better, but we have somebody has to be in charge. Okay? So, women have a broader emotional spectrum than men. Men can be very blah. You know, I mean, here's, here's me happy. Here's me mad. Here's me sad. You know what I mean? Men are more stoic, more pragmatic. God created women to be creators of beauty, to nurture you know, whenever you see a famous athlete on TV, or even if he's not famous, if he's on TV, he always says, hi, Mom, right? I've never seen one say, hi, Dad. It's always, hi, Mom. They're the nurturers. They're the ones who really bring fullness into our lives. Women are great. But because of these aspects of their character and their nature, and because of God's order, they are particularly vulnerable to deceiving, lying men. These false teachers allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness. And Paul says to Timothy, this sort are those who creep into households and make captives of gullible women loaded down with sins, led away by various lusts. And now... And that obviously has a, a sexual connotation to it. But now they can creep in via the TV, radio, or internet. Because the seduction can not only be sexual or physical, it can be mental and emotional as well. And even with a female writer like Sarah Young and her book, Jesus Calling, that book reads like a girl who's in love with her boyfriend. It has a seductive quality to it. It appeals to that aspect of a female nature. You, you understand what I'm saying? If you haven't read it, don't bother. But if you have read it, you probably know what I'm talking about. It doesn't sound like a woman worshiping her God. It sounds like a woman anxious to go out on a date with her boyfriend. That's not biblical. That's not the way we're to view God and our relationship with him. 
They allure through the lusts of the flesh, through lewdness. Listen, the ones, here are the ones that are being allured, baited. It's, it's like a hunting terminology, baiting and trapping, holding out the bait. The ones who have actually escaped from those who live in error. Now, I told you this, I believe it was last week. The number one target for false teachers is immature believers. If you're in the Word, if you're studied up, if you're prayed up, if you're in fellowship, then you should not be vulnerable to these deceptions. But so many believers live out their lives based on feelings and emotions that they become vulnerable to these deceivers. The ones who have actually escaped. So to me, I don't know how else to interpret this, but it's talking about true believers. I mentioned the girl that I briefly dated in high school who was a Mormon, and her mother had converted to Mormonism from the Baptist church. Many people that are now in cult groups were once in mainline, mainstream Christian denominations. Do you know that? Why did that happen? They weren't rooted and grounded in the truth of God's word. Amazingly, I got enough of the word growing up in the Foursquare church that when the Mormons tried to get me, I've told you before, I did come very close. But in the end, I had the word of God and the spirit of God and my mother and my friend Ron to stand up against those guys. And they came for their final visit to prepare me for baptism into the Mormon church. It didn't happen. Every kind of cult you can think of tried to get me. The Maharishi. I'm serious. Not personally. The Maharishi didn't come to my house. But my good friend's mother gave me his book and then she gave me another one about self-realization, Paramahansa Yogananda. And then there was the guy with the astrology. The devil threw everything at me that he could possibly throw. And he will do that to each and every one of us. So you better be rooted and grounded in the truth of God's word. Verse 19, when they promise them liberty, they themselves are slaves of corruption. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also is he brought into bondage. They promise them liberty. Now, not the kind of liberty that Christ promises, because you've got to understand when Jesus says, you'll know the truth and the truth will make you free. He whom the Son sets free is free indeed. But that freedom... I don't know how many Christians even understand this. The freedom that Christ offers is the freedom to not sin. Did you know that? It's not the freedom to do whatever you want. You already had that in the world. The only problem is there is a way which seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. Yeah, you, you, as a non-believer, you can do whatever you want, but you will die. And I don't just mean physically. You will die spiritually. And you might die a horrible physical death because we know of AIDS and other horrible STDs and so forth. We know of the destructive nature of alcohol abuse, drug abuse. There are a lot of ways you can really kill yourself real good. And they all have to do with sin. Now, if you don't sin, does that mean you're not going to die? No, you're still going to die. We still get sick. The rain falls on the just and the unjust. Christians still get sick. Christians still get diseases. But you can certainly speed up the process if you sin real good. They promise them liberty, not the liberty that Christ promises, which is the liberty to worship him, to live for him, to follow him, not to obey the devil, not to obey the flesh, 
That's the freedom we have in Christ. The freedom they promise is the liberty to indulge the flesh. Hey, man, God created you with these desires. He understands. You're only human. And after all, you love each other, right? He wants you to enjoy life. Doesn't God wants you to enjoy life, doesn't he? Well, yeah. Once saved, always saved, bro. Hey, man, party down. You received Christ, right? You identify as a Christian, right? Have a good time. Brother, you're free in Christ to do what makes you happy. God wants you to be happy. That's the liberty that they promise. But they themselves are slaves of corruption. See, false teachers generally engage in all the kinds of corruption behind closed doors. We've heard the stories. The drugs, the alcohol, all the other things, the women. That's what took Jim Baker and uh, Swaggart down. And again, you know, every indication is that they repented. That's great. We've all sinned and come short of the glory of God. But these are the warnings that God has for us in His Word. For by whom a person is overcome, by him also is he brought into bondage. Let me read two other translations. NASB, New American Standard Bible. For by what a man is overcome, by this he is enslaved. And then NIV, which honestly I have to say I like the best. People are slaves to whatever has mastered them. And it's saying... By whom a person is overcome. In other words, if you come under the sway of some false teacher, then you will be brought into the same bondage that he or she is under. People are slaves to whatever has mastered them. This only works well if we are mastered by Christ. Is Jesus your master? That means you're his slave. Do you realize that? Now, it's, it sounds cool to say, Jesus is my master. But you've got to realize when you say that, that means you are his slave. Is that okay? Are you okay with that? I'd rather be God's slave than the devil's whipping boy. And that's all you'll ever be if you sign up with him. So if you allow yourself to come under the sway of a false teacher, you will ultimately become enslaved by his or her deception you've seen it right people they seem like zombies they're brainwashed you can't talk with them you can't reason with them because they've become enslaved by the deception of the false teacher that they've signed up with that's why for the most part it is a fruitless pursuit to try to persuade someone who's a member of a cult Pastor Chuck Smith had personal dealings with some of these groups and he did not encourage people to go out and waste a lot of time trying to convert someone who's a member of a cult. Now, when someone is actually being drawn by the Holy Spirit, God will make that obvious. But one of the devil's favorite tools in his toolbox is to get us to waste our time with people that are not prepared to hear the message. Jesus said, hey, if they don't receive your message, shake the dust off of your feet and move on. 
We should always be ready to give an answer, as Paul told Timothy. Actually, Peter, I believe, said that. But anyway, but only when it's obvious that God is drawing that person, preparing them. Otherwise, we can waste a lot of time on somebody who's totally brainwashed like a zombie, can't hear a word you're saying, and has a comeback because they've been trained to come back. Matthew 23, 13 through 15. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you shut up the kingdom of heaven against men, for you neither go in yourselves, nor and he's talking to the Pharisees, see? Nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. That's exactly what Peter is saying. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense make long prayers. Therefore you will receive greater condemnation. There's that great swelling words of emptiness. You'll receive greater condemnation than just the average garden variety unregenerate sinner. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you travel land and sea to win one proselyte, and when he is one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as you yourselves. Man, this is exactly what Peter's talking about here. And the Pharisees, I mean, they weren't part of a cult necessarily. They weren't Mormons or Jehovah's Witnesses. They were supposed to be the, the spiritual leaders of Israel. But it was a dead religion, a dead faith. And so they were, in a sense, false teachers because they didn't practice what they preached and they led the people under them astray and Jesus condemns them for it. Verse 20, For if after they have escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, they are again entangled in them and overcome, the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. Now this is where it gets into some of the areas that we debate about and we, we struggle with. A number of commentators argue that this does not necessarily or even probably mean that these false teachers were ever truly saved. That they might be part of that group that identified as Christians. But I tend to disagree. Words like escaped and knowledge, epigenosis in the Greek, seem to argue against this. Only God truly knows their hearts, and He alone executes the final judgment. But again, this is an area where we could really have a debate about They've escaped the pollutions of the world through the knowledge of the Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It sounds as though they truly were converted at one point. And so when we talk about those who disagree, and perhaps actually, to be honest, maybe even the majority would disagree with my viewpoint, even the best scholars, theologians, and Bible teachers can be swayed by their own personal inclinations. We've talked before about Calvinism versus Arminianism. If you're a Calvinist, then you would have to believe that these men were not truly converted. If you're an Arminianist, then you could very easily believe that they were converted but then fell away. I think at the very least what we can say when we get into passages like this, that God gives us the most serious warnings possible so that we will not in any way, shape, or form ever entertain the idea of coming under the sway of a false teacher or becoming one ourselves. They are ent again entangled in them and overcome the pollutions of the world. They become entangled again in the pollutions of the world. Entangled, impleco in the Greek. It's where we get our word implicate. 
It means to braid in, to interweave in, to involve in, to entangle. It means here that they become implicated in those pollutions of the world like an animal that's entangled in a net, having escaped, but they now have become once again entangled. And then, as we see in other scriptures as well, Peter says the latter end is worse for them than the beginning. So again, Jesus said it, Peter said it, Paul said it. Peter alludes here again to a more severe judgment, a punishment for false teachers. 2 Peter 2.9, Then the Lord knows how to rescue the godly from temptation and to keep the unrighteous under punishment for the day of judgment and especially those who indulge the flesh in its corrupt desires and despise authority. Especially, we talked about that quite a bit. James 3.3, Let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing that as such we will incur a stricter judgment. So even those who are not false teachers are held to a higher level of accountability by God. There are many people think, that think it's a real glory gig. That's the ultimate. Boy, if I could be up in that pulpit, if I could preach, if I could teach, wow, that would be so awesome. But it's a big responsibility not to be taken lightly. And if that's the case for those who are really making every effort to stick with the truth, imagine the accountability for those who don't. 2 Peter 2.21, For it would have been better for them not to have known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. Wow, that's a powerful statement. Peter's saying better that they would have never heard the gospel or if you believe that they were truly converted, better that they had never been converted than to end up like this. I, I can't help but think of Judas when I read this. Chosen, one of the twelve, lived with Christ for three years, was taught and discipled by him, and yet turned upon him in the end. Better if they had never known the way of righteousness than having known it to turn from the holy commandment delivered to them. This could mean that someone has heard the gospel and acknowledged that it is true, but ultimately turns away from it, or it could very well mean that this individual has truly embraced the gospel of Christ, they've been born again, but has subsequently given in to the temptations of greed, lust, and power. Final verse, 22. It has happened to them according to the true proverb, a dog returns to his own vomit, and a sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. You ever seen a dog do that? Doesn't it? Yeah, it's just disgusting, isn't it? He regurgitates, and then proceeds to consume it. That shows you what God thinks of these people. Proverbs 26, 11, as a dog returns to his own vomit, so a fool repeats his folly. A sow having washed to her wallowing in the mire. No matter how many times you wash a pig, given the opportunity, it will always return to its natural habitat, the mud. And Dr. J. Vernon McGee used to point out that the only difference between the pigs and the prodigal son was the pig stayed in the mud and the prodigal son didn't. Now, I have to say this final verse here in 2 Peter presents the strongest argument in favor of the fact that these false teachers were never truly converted for all their eloquence, persuasiveness, and great swelling words of emptiness. In the end, they returned to their true state, which, again, by today's standards, this is harsh language. Dogs and pigs. But guess what? The Bible's not politically correct. So in the end, we have to realize only God knows for sure 
where they have stood with him. But in the end, it appears that they do not stand with him and there will be a strict judgment for them. So it's absolutely imperative that we avoid any such false teaching, deceptive teaching and preaching, no matter how persuasive it might be. And it often is very, very persuasive. And in the last days, there will be fewer and fewer people who will adhere to the truth of God's word. But I, for one, want to be one of those who does. How about you? Peter's words of warning in this chapter could not be more penetrating or profound. We need to take them to heart, meditate upon them. As David said, Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Let's stand. Father God, we thank you again for your word. It is powerful. It's dynamic. It's not always comfortable. But Lord, we thank you that you told us that we would know the truth and the truth would set us free. Your truth, not anyone else's truth. Your truth is the only real truth. Help us to stand firm upon your truth, not to be deceived in these last days. Give us strength, Father. So many are being tempted and drawn away by flowery words, by the great swelling words of emptiness. Help us to stand firm, stay strong, and persevere because your word says those who endure or persevere to the end will be saved. Lord, I also want to pray for that person who seemed to have been upset or offended by the discussion this morning on abortion. I pray that you'd comfort them, strengthen them, encourage them, and help them to understand how important these issues are. We thank you and we pray that as we close, all those who need prayer this morning would come and receive the ministry of your Holy Spirit. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. <laughs>